0: Strange things are growing in our movies, TV shows and books. There are so many weird and wonderful plants in the stories you know and love, but
1: are they based in science or fiction? In each episode, we dive into the botany hidden in our favorite stories. We find out what's real and what's fantasy with help from the experts here at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Erica. And this is Botanical Mystery Tour. Today we're going to be talking about Black Mirror, the British sci-fi TV series that imagines a world where technology evolves to nightmarish effect. In season three, the episode Hated in the Nation gets into bee extinction, and how humans in the Black Mirror world solve that problem with drone bees.
0: Bees themselves were virtually extinct, so what our ADIs do is effectively stand in for them. They're solar powered. They they don't need nectar, but they pollinate flowers the same way. They they crawl inside, pollen sticks to their legs, and gets brushed off next flower they visit. Can they make honey? Yeah, uh, no. I was joking. Are we headed to a world where robot bees are possible, or is the idea just some ludicrous invention of Charlie Brooker's imagination?
1: We called on Paul Caradana, a research scientist here at the garden. Paul's research focuses on the structure and function of ecological communities and species interactions, mostly with plants and pollinators. Basically, he knows a lot about bees and why they're important. Hi, Paul.
2: Howdy.
0: (laughs) So let's start just uh, with the basics. Why are bees so necessary to
2: humans? Yeah, great question. So uh, I like to think about it in two ways. There's sort of uh, the broad perspective, which is that Plants need, most uh, flowering plants need animals for help with their reproduction. And uh, bees and other animal pollinators uh, help out with that job. So basically, many plants are sort of hiring um animal pollinators like bees as sex workers to help them
0: reproduce. (laughs) Get right into it. So
2: without bees or other animal pollinators in in that sense, many plants wouldn't be able to reproduce as much. Some would have no reproduction, others would have severely reduced reproduction. Our estimates for the number of of plant species, flowering plant species that rely on animal pollinators is close to 90% across the globe. Um, so a lot of plants are are using this this service of animal pollination to, to basically have sex and make babies.
1: And so why is that a problem for us?
2: Yeah, so part two, the human-centric perspective is that many um, agricultural species or crops uh, also need to be um, pollinated. So in some cases, we need plants, we need the plants to be pollinated because we use their seeds to grow more of the plants. So like lettuce or things like that where we just eat the greens but many other fruits um the the fruit itself is the product of pollination so we know that um like almonds for example um based on their biology they need uh uh, pollinators to make almonds if you take the pollinators out of the perspective or to the picture um we get no almonds and that's the same case for lots and lots of, of fruits um so if we didn't have bees around, um, which are one of the more efficient pollinators out there, um, we would certainly see reductions in, in crop yields, and we would probably see um, prices go up in grocery stores and by some estimates, we would see perhaps close to fifty percent of a reduction in the the offerings um, that you'd see at a regular grocery store
0: so they'd be affected, but in terms of like going completely away, we're not there yet
2: no, we're not there yet i I mean um and we'll we'll probably talk about this in a in in a in a moment. But um, we see evidence for pollinator declines across the globe um, in sort of very different ways. And there's sort of two flavors of pollinator declines. One is focused on honeybees and colony collapse disorder, and the other is sort of native pollinator declines. And so. Uh, one way to think of it is that a uh, honeybee is just and most most people have are usually their minds are blown when they 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 learn this but a honeybee is just one of about 20 to 30,000 bee species worldwide.
0: Did you say thousand? 20 to 30,000?
2: Yeah, so <laughs> there's lots and lots of of uh wild bees out there right. across the globe. In North America we have close to 4,000 species. Um in Illinois we have about 500 species. Um Biodiversity hotspot in North America is in the Southwest. Um, forget the exact number, but closer to 2,000 species of bees um, in the Southwest. So there's lots and lots of types of bees. Some of them are living in the ground, some are social, like honeybees. Others prefer really cold climates, like mountaintops, like bumblebees, for example. Um, some are these little blue bees, these metallic blue bees, the size of like a, a jelly bean or a black bean. Others are metallic green with stripes. Some are yellow and fuzzy. Um, once you start looking into what all these these bees look like, there's this stunning diversity. And the way that they make a living in nature is sort of equally as fascinating. Um, like I said, some that are nesting in the ground, some that are nesting in sort of cavities in you know, holes in trees or like a rotten stump. Others that can live in cities and sort of like a, a crack in the sidewalk that opens up to something underneath um they're all different ways to to be a bee and where most most people are familiar with just honeybees um which we can manage they live in these big hives um or we can manage them in these hives and believe it or not they're actually from europe and asia brought over in the 1600s so they're not even native to north america um so Okay. Yeah. Long story short, to answer your question, <laughs> there are lots of bees out there. Yeah. So it's not like we've got just honeybees and colony collapse disorder, which is a real thing and happening. Um, doesn't mean that like all of a sudden we're going to see no more bees overnight. Um,
1: so can you talk a little bit about colony collapse disorder? Because that's in Black Mirror, um, yeah. the, the issue that they're trying to address. And, and you talked a little bit about how we can manage these bees sort of in their hives. Um, what the leader in Black Mirror, who is the leader of the- One of the, the heads of the company that yeah. like created these bees. Yeah. yeah, he says that they don't know why colony collapse disorder is happening. Yeah, Is that true? Do we yeah, still so not know?
2: When I when I was watching that segment of the episode, the British dude, right? With yes, the like yeah. striped shirt and the blazer. <laughs> I
0: think he might be Scandinavian, I'm not sure. True, yeah. But he was, it's a British right. company, It's yeah, it's in England.
2: So I, believe, uh, yeah. I thought that was interesting. They said we just don't know, <laughs> um, because we we do know it's just sort of a complicated issue to correct and solve. So the uh, it's sort of a cocktail of things that are affecting um, honeybee populations. So we we when I say we manage them, we're able to like in nature they'd build um, a hive or a colony sort of. And a little and uh, like a rotten cavity of a tree or up in a tree, and like a you know between two branches or something, um, but we can put them in these boxes with those slats that they build their comb on, and we because of that, we can sort of move them around really easily, and so they're really great for um pollinating crops because if a farmer in California needs his almonds pollinated, you just throw six colonies on a truck and send them out um, so um, when it comes to colony collapse disorder, the, there's a few things going on. One is that we've got these bees that are foraging on, um, resources. Like I'll just keep using almonds because it's an easy one. It's like an ocean of almonds, almond flowers. And so they only get to eat almonds for a month or whatever, however long they're out there, which is kind of like, if I said, okay, you can eat only frozen tacos for a month.
0: Don't um, underestimate our love for frozen tacos. Yum. Yeah,
2: but only <laughs> but yeah, frozen tacos.
0: It would get boring after a while. It would get monotonous.
2: And you might start to feel a little <laughs> sick. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, you need then, a balanced diet need more nutritional diversity.
2: Exactly. And then I could throw on top of that for almonds, for example, I'm going to add like a little bit of something that is a little bit toxic because in almond pollen and nectar, there's a little bit of, of toxicity, some, some, uh, arsenic, not much, but a little, uh, then we throw in some pesticides. Um, so I'll spray you with that as you're eating your, your frozen tacos every day. Um, and so you might start to feel a little sick or whatever, and then I'm going to put you on a truck for six days in the dark with no food. And then you're going to show up and you're gonna have to eat frozen pizza, like which would, I don't know. Yeah, you'll be eating frozen pizza someplace else for a month, which is like taking them from California and then bringing them to Texas to pollinate grapefruits. And then when you're all sick and not feeling well, we're going to bring you all back to, say, you know, Michigan, where all our colonies are together, and you're going to hang out and you know, share, touch each other, and socialize really closely. And and everyone might get sick. And then on top of that too, because now everyone, all these bees are stressed. Um, they're more susceptible to parasites um, and other diseases. So there's not really one, the, the sort of setup there it doesn't have to happen in that order, but it's like, uh, there are all these things that are stressing them out. No one thing is really enough to, to tip the scale, but when you put them all together, um, it starts to really take a hit on uh, these bee colonies. Um, another way to think of it that I tell my, my students when I'm teaching is that, you know, okay, taking your final exams is, is stressful, but whatever, you know, you're going to do it. But then if you're sick on top of that, it makes it that much harder. And then if like your grandma died on top of that, now finals is getting pretty intense. Like you're just spread really thin and maybe that starts to really affect your grade. Cause you're just like, you can't focus. And I, obviously the bees can still focus, but they're dealing with sort of an onslaught of pesticides being, uh, fed, uh, a very limited diet being moved around and then being put in contact with other bees that might have parasites or diseases. And
0: we're stressing the bees out a lot. It sounds like,
2: yeah, (laughs) we are.
0: So does it, so we're talking about managed bee populations. Do you see this in bees that are not being managed by people?
2: Yeah. So it's, there's overlap with, with, um, the the stressors that honeybees face and native bees uh, face. But of course, because we're not managing native bees, they're not sort of dealing with monotonous diets in the same way. Um, But the big thing for native bees is habitat destruction. So you're not gonna find any native bees in in the Central Valley in California if you've just got these giant almond orchards because there's no place for the bees to live. Um, And then... You throw in uh, some diseases um, that are maybe transmitted through through honeybees, um, so they're picking up those. Um, not in all cases, but we have evidence that 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 happens. Um, yeah, but the big thing is uh, habitat destruction, and then also pesticide use and herbicide use. So um, you spray a farmer sprays a small field or something, and those those herbicides or pesticides spread out um, into the natural systems, or you have native bees going into these um, fields and pollinating because they're floral resources or flower food nearby and they're picking up these, these toxins and getting sick from that as well.
1: So bee populations are in decline. Uh, and in Black Mirror, their solution is to use drone bees. Are we, how far are we from, because I'm already afraid bees And these, like, do I need to close my windows at night? Are we in a world where we're going to need drone bees to save us all? Do we sleep with earmuffs on just in case? I mean.
2: Yeah. So it's a great question and it's, it's a really clever um, idea for an episode. Um, So I I don't think I have, I have several opinions on, on these sort of robo bees or drone bees. (laughs) Um, And the first thing is I think we are still. Uh, maybe I'll take a, a, a positive slant on this, but I, I think we're pretty far from drone bees for a couple of reasons. One, there still are lots and lots of, of bees out there. Um, we're, as a scientific community, we're trying to figure out sort of how severe and how rapid um, pollinator declines uh, are happening, um, where they're happening, what types of ecosystems they're most likely to be happening in. But um you know, we, we have a sense that they are happening, but the, you know, how quickly we should be or how quickly it's happening is still um, hard to sort of say like, okay, we're going to have no bees by whatever 2050. I don't think we can say that. And I don't actually think that I don't think that that's going to happen. The next part is that I think one of my criticisms of this idea of, of drone bees or robo bees is that it kind of uh suggests that or it has the the potential to make people feel like oh well now we don't need to conserve any of those native bees which is i would argue at the moment is probably not more expensive than robo bees um but i think it it does take away from sort of uh us going out and and restoring habitats and making sure we do things to to support native bee populations and make sure they're healthy in the first place why use robots when we have nature doing this for free and they do it really well for free already. So I would rather just, you know, make sure that's operating well rather than invest in um, these robo bees. And then next is sort of the technology, which I think is, is uh, quite fascinating. So um, and there's a few things going on. So there have been some pretty big advancements in our ability to have these sort of tiny little automated drones, uh, and robo bees. Um, I think it was a couple years ago and I think it was a Japanese scientist, um, designed something that, uh, it got a little bit of press that like, oh, look, it can pick up pollen. And so I looked into it and saw the YouTube video and it's like a drone, the size of like a whatever, a baseball or something. And they like glue all this horse hair to the bottom of it. And then they use these gigantic lilies, like those stargazer ones that are like the size of your face. And they like fly this drone, like it, it just looks like the drone is crashing into the flower. <laughs> and so there's
1: no way that it can't pick up pollen.
2: <laughs> right, so the horse hair smacks the giant flower and picks up some pollen, which usually just like falling off of these things anyway. And they're like, okay, cool, we've, we're getting it to work. Fixed. And I think that that's certainly a step in the right direction. Um, you know, we need to take baby steps if we're going to actually do this. And I think people should try. I mean, that's it's cool to have, if we could like have robo bees, a
0: backup plan. Yeah. Mm.
2: Um, but it's still, to me, it seems pretty far away from yeah. actually being functional. And the other part about it is that, I mean, my whole... Sort of research program and that of many others that sort of study pollination biology in one way or the other. Mine is sort of focused on interactions in nature and how they all fit together. Other people focus on, you know, the behavior of pollinators in the lab and also out in the field, how they make foraging decisions, um, things like that. Um, Others are focused on sort of how a specific pollinator actually sort of gets into a flower and how the, you know, the precise mechanism of pollination. And so all that's to say is that by saying that we could, if we were, we're not, we don't even understand exactly how it works. So how are we going to invent these bees that go out and do this really well? And so in the the Black Mirror episode, he says that they have this sort of visual recognition um, to find the flowers. And indeed, that's clever. And I think that's probably what will happen. But there's just a lot more going on to get a little baby robot to actually do this and do it the way that actual pollinators do. It's
0: a more complex system of how bees actually find the flowers that they end up pollinating than just, oh, there's a lily, there's a, a rose, there's whatever flower that they're, that they're the pollinator for.
2: Yeah, and so, I mean, you know, it took nature, whatever, 90 million years to have 20,000 pollinators that can pollinate all sorts of different plants in the world. And I just, I'm skeptical that we can get there in an effective way really quickly. And I, I have a hard time uh, and I'm not trying to be like a, you know, a downer about it, but I just have a hard time sort of imagining these drones sort of taking all the, the information we know about how pollination works in nature and sort of building that into a program that has them actually doing what we want. Um, The other thing that's funny in Black Mirrors is that they build, which I I thought this was hilarious and clever, that they build these like 3D printer highs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like they build their own highs, yes, they 3D print them. And then they just like kept going in the episode and they just, okay, I guess what can they, I mean, is that possible to have a 3D printer in that tiny little bee?
2: That part to me is like a few steps down the line, (laughs) which is cool. I mean, I think one of the things about sci-fi that's fascinating is you sort of, you know, make a guess about what the future is going to look like and like, maybe this is how our, you know, these artificial intelligent robo bees reproduce is by making 3d printers. Um, that's not at all how nature works. Um, obviously 3d printers, but so it's, it's a little bit confusing there, but it was still pretty clever. I know that there are various groups that are trying to build robo bees and, um, I think it makes sense as sort of a backup strategy and I certainly wouldn't want to stifle innovation by any means, but I, I think there's a lot more going on and, and I think we should, we should not assume that we're better than nature and can sort of get one step up on (laughs) her. So you're
1: going to Colorado soon Yeah. to take on your next research project. What are you hoping to learn with that?
2: Yeah. So, um, a lot of my research uh, has taken place um, in the Colorado Rocky Mountains um, on plant pollinator interactions. And so uh, a project that we started a little bit last year and are really getting kicked up this year is trying to actually look at what are the consequences of potential pollinator declines. So. Um, believe it or not, although we have evidence that pollinator declines are happening in native bee populations, and of course with with honeybee populations as well, um, exactly how that all works out and affects the plants is, is not as clear as you might guess. So on one side of the, the story or spectrum is... Um, evidence that suggests that when we see, when we have these sort of long-term data sets, one of them, a famous one from Europe, where we have sort of data from um, several decades of pollinator abundance and plant abundance, we see parallel declines in both uh, pollinator populations and plant populations that rely on pollinators. And so there's other examples of that where we see sort of bee extinctions. Um, And there's a a really cool study from Illinois where researchers were able to look um, at, resurvey a data set from the 1880s and they found lots of bee extinctions. And as a result, the sort of web of interactions is less stable and there's a decline in pollination services as well. But then on the other side of the spectrum, when you sort of talk to uh, someone who studies plant population biology, Um, and sort of the growth rates of a population and extinction potential of populations. They would argue that, hey, most of what we know about plants that live for more than one year is that um, the ability to grow and survive is more important than reproducing in any one year. So the example I like to use is a oak tree, which isn't uh, the best example here for pollination, but it illustrates the point that oak tree lives for 200 years it can reproduce, you know, we could say only 10 years out of the 200. And if some of those acorns germinate and turn into new adults, it's, you know, contributing to um, a sustainable or stable population. Um, And many other plants uh, live for many years. And so reproducing in any one year might not have a big impact on their population stability. So, we sort of have these two conflicting um, hypotheses about the the severity of that pollinator declines are likely to have. So what we're doing is taking an experimental approach with a set of plant species in Colorado where we're uh, experimentally um, reducing pollination to sort of simulate pollinator declines. We're also increasing pollination, and then, um, giving them uh, variable plants, variable pollination over the course of, of four years. So relatively short term, but what we're hoping to do with this experiment is see like what happens when you consistently get a reduction in pollination services. Does that cause the population? Would we predict the population to go extinct under those uh, experimental estimates, or are there trade-offs the plants can make? So maybe for some plants, they can um, they have a reduction in pollination. So they can't reproduce, but they can grow more, and then maybe they reproduce two years down the line, and they can really cash in because they got really big in the absence of pollination. Um, or uh, you know, consistent reductions in um, pollination services mean that even though reproduction might not be the biggest deal for population dynamics, it's enough to to cause a population decline, even just with a handful of years of lower pollination. So we don't really know. We we think that there's likely to be some buffering and that the, the plants are not just going to go extinct, you know, instantly. Um, but yeah, that's, what, that's why we're trying to figure it out. We have the field team is uh, out in the Rockies right now, tagging some plants. And uh, they're just about, the first species is a purple larkspur. It's about to bloom probably in the next week. And they'll start putting these little uh, mesh bags over the flowers um, to prevent pollinators from getting in. And, you know, preventing them from reproducing. Plant parenthood.
0: Sorry, I can't say what I was going (laughs) to (laughs) say.
2: There's lots of, there's many jokes in the field about (laughs) what we're doing to the plants. Um, So how long are you going to be out in Colorado? So I'll be heading out um, June 1st and probably until the end of August this year. So we'll be looking at five different species that flower um, at different times of the season that have different sort of floral traits. So some of them are sort of more showy, attractive flowers that might conceal their nectar and might have more specialized pollinators. And then others that are a little bit more open, like a big bowl that's that are accessible to lots of pollinators. And so one of the ideas is maybe we can, by using this variation, we can get a sense of whether the plants that are a little bit more picky and who pollinates them, maybe they're more susceptible to pollinator declines compared to those that are basically offering food to any pollinator that will land on their reproductive parts.
0: Well, I hope you figure out how to help us avoid an ADI automated drone
2: insect oh, world yeah, me too.
0: with your Makes research. you wanna
1: plant some pollinator plants in your garden,
2: doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, Be
1: nice that's... to bees, guys. Don't stress them out. <laughs>
2: Yeah, bee nice.
0: <laughs> be nice. Be <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I think you gave us a lot of insight on, uh, and you've quelled my fears, I think, because the, the episode did uh, scare me because I've been hearing so much about bee populations declining. And it seemed like so plausible like, oh, this is the it's solution. So immediate. This is what we're going to do. Right. And it's going to happen soon. Um, A lot of other Black Mirror episodes seem very far-fetched. Like this is, I'm going to be long gone before we get to this technology. This one seemed more immediate, but yeah, it seems like it's not as immediate as I was worried about.
2: Well, and it's good for us to. I think one of the benefits of sort of a sci-fi scenario is that it maybe just sort of gives us a visual of what what can happen if we're not careful. You know, hopefully. Uh, Who knows what the impact of that Black Mirror episode will be, but maybe it will have us thinking twice about what we do with our pollinators and how we treat them.
0: So there you have it. We don't have to worry about robot bees taking over as pollinators,
1: yet. Botanical Mystery Tour is produced by the Chicago Botanic Garden. You can find us at BotanicalMysteryTour.com or on iTunes, Google Play, and your favorite podcast apps. Join us next episode as we talk about the corpse flower and its rare, smelly bloom in The Simpsons and Dennis the Menace. And if you're in the Chicago area,
0: come visit the garden. Wonderland Express, our annual holiday extravaganza, kicks off on Friday, November 23rd. You can find out more about everything happening at the garden and what's currently in bloom at ChicagoBotanic.org. So that's it. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Erica. And thank you for coming with us on the Botanical Mystery Tour.
1: Botanical Mystery Tour is produced by the Chicago Botanic Garden. Any reference to specific pop culture media does not constitute or imply an endorsement by the Chicago Botanic Garden. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Chicago Botanic Garden.